All right, Joshua chapter 6, turn there if you would this evening. I'll be there in a few moments. Tonight I have a thought entitled, A Limiting Factor of One, taken from the text we'll read in a few moments. As I mentioned this morning, and I'm going to continue the thought with giving this evening, um, I think it's good once or twice a year to emphasize the idea of giving, to really challenge people new in their faith, or maybe someone who's never really crossed the hurdle of faith in learning to give the Lord a full tithe. Um, I, I, it's a difficult area. I, I remember, um, I, I didn't grow up in the kind of Christian home that modeled this for me, and I remember being young and Terry and I making that a significant commitment to us at that time to begin to tithe, and we stepped out in faith, and now we have you know, almost 36 years together of testimony that would say God takes care of you. And that, that 90% with God is so much greater than any percentage without Him. But I understand that for people who are new, there, there can be maybe some fear there, skepticism. Overcoming our, sin, uh, our sinfulness and selfishness is a real thing in every area of life. Um, giving is a genuine step of faith. It's, and it's a big step of faith for some people. The very fact that giving is initially hard is part of the reason God asked us to do it. Because that is an area that requires a, a step of faith. It puts us in the position of choosing whom we will serve. The paycheck, mammon, and or God and His uh, provision. And, and so God does this somewhat deliberately. You know there's a text in uh, Matthew 26 that says, um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that has all kinds of application in our lives, and I think that's true in giving. It would be my opinion that anyone who is genuinely saved wants to give. I think it's in their heart to want to do that, to have the courage, the faith to step out and, and continue uh, to, to be generous on an ongoing basis. And so, sermons like the one this morning and tonight are really meant to help us overcome our fears, excuses, and maybe our lack of faith to begin that journey of faith in a brand new way. And so we're going to continue that this evening. So if you don't mind, stand with me as we look at a text that I think is familiar to all of us. It's the story of uh, Joshua and his beginning conquest of the land of Canaan. And so we'll take up our reading in chapter 6, verse number 1. <clears throat> now Jericho was straightly shut up, closed, because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. What an interesting military tactic, <laughs> you know. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times. So you have this, six days, once around, next day, once around, six times, seventh day, around and around and around, and you'll be blowing trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout. Now, six days of silence. On the seventh day, marching, marching, trumpet blast, then everyone yells. That would be disconcerting behind the walls of Jericho. Yeah. That would feel really uh, odd. And they'll shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall send up every man straight before him. And that's exactly what happened. Now let's look at verse number 17. 
And <clears throat> so this is going to happen. But now, some instructions from God to Joshua to disseminate to the people about when you go in and you encounter all the spoils and the treasures inside Jericho. And the city shall be 17, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all therein, and to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And that was the, the story of the spies. And ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing. Okay, what is the accursed thing? Anything really of monetary value. Garments, gold, silver, um, anything that would have really monetary value. Lest you yourselves are accursed when you take of the accursed thing. And make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. So you doing bad will bring bad to you and bring bad to all of us. But all the silver and gold, and vessels of brass and iron, are consecrated unto the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So, where do all the treasures they find in Jericho belong? Well, they belong in the treasury of the Lord. This is a type of first fruits. First battle, it's like what we talked today, the green apple. It's the first fruits, it's the first of, of all the battles to come. And as a type and a kind of giving, I want you to take everything that you uh, win on this day. Don't keep it. Set it in the treasury of the Lord. Now, chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> but the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. And so, look with me, would now, in verse, uh, well, for a second time, verse 11. Verse 11. <laughs> Now verse 10, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Get thee up, wherefore liest thou thus upon thy face? And this is because of a defeat they just uh, encountered, which I'll talk about in a moment. Israel hath sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, for they even have taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen the same language we heard in Malachi, and dissembled also. And they have put even among their own stuff. And so they took of the accursed thing, the treasures of Jericho. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, and that would have been Ai, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were cursed. Neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the accursed from among you. So up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves against uh, tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee, a thief, O Israel, thou cannot stand before thy enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Father, I pray in the next few moments that you would use this text as you intended to be a guide, Lord, an example to us. And Lord, help us to consider the sobriety of this thought and then, Lord, make appropriate application to our lives. And I ask this in your blessed name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. <clears throat> The larger context of our story is um, Israel, uh, now after, after having wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief initially, they are now crossing Jordan and face the first major city of conquest in the land of Canaan, um, this city of Jericho. They are entering the promised land, and for the previous 40 years, Moses led uh, really what it seemed like a faithless generation. 
a group of people, for reasons I don't fully comprehend, uh, would not believe in the fact that God could and would provide for them. And they wandered in the wilderness because of that. In that wilderness, God did miracle after miracle, and, and, and their stubbornness really presided among them until all that generation died away, and a new generation of young people arose. Those people had major trust issues. Well, going back in history, upon their first attempt to enter the Promised Land, they let fear play the greater part of, than faith, and they shrunk back when God asked them to go forward because what they said were giants in the land. And so God did make them go through the wilderness. God there provided, and now a new generation is crossing Jordan into Canaan, uh, what the Bible calls the Promised Land. The first battle is at hand. It's Jericho. It's a fence city. Uh, most ancient cities were fenced about. Some were incredibly large. Uh, there were some amazing ones, um, like in Babylon, that had uh, you know walls so tall that chariots could race across them. Every one of them was formidable. This put the people inside at a great advantage. The people outside at a great disadvantage because people then could shoot and fire and throw things down upon them. And so they were somewhat intimidating to people. The only way really to win was through a siege. And that would be long lasting until you basically um, starve the people out. But that was not God's plan here in Jericho. Um, the battle plan here is quite interesting and unique. But one thing about it that was very specific, the children of Israel would not fight in it. They would march, they would walk in obedience, and then the trumpets would blast, and then they would shout. Uh, but God now, proving that He is with them in a very supernatural way, said He would fight for them. And so the instruction here is specific, and we've already read it, and, and what they were to do. But the point being here that the battle and the provision would be the Lord's. And so God gives them that specific instruction in verses 17 and 19 of chapter 6. And uh, He does this because Jericho would be a type of first fruits. It's, it's the first of many things. It's the first city that would be overthrown. It would be the first major battle within Canaan. They had faced battles in the, in the, in the desert crossing, but this would be the first major battle in Canaan. It would be the first opportunity they would have to find rewards, uh, to find what we called spoils in those days, treasures. And it would be the first and great opportunity to honor and worship the Lord by them providing all the spoils and dedicating those to the temple in this new endeavor of occupying Canaan. And so God says, incredibly specifically, take no spoils from it. All that you win today in this battle is to be put in the treasury of the Lord. He says, take no gold, take no silver, take no garments, take no cattle, take nothing. Take all of this and you will, in essence, tithe with it. You'll put all of it in the treasury of the Lord. Now, it's sobering to me the language that God uses here because He's really trying to press a point in their national conscience as a new nation, something that He wants to guide them throughout the rest of their identity as a nation in the land of in, in Canaan. And he says, I want you to not take this. As a matter of fact, what would otherwise seem as a reward, since it's dedicated, consecrated to the Lord, if you take it, it'll be accursed. Now, that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Like, I'm literally saying, if you take what is God's, it's not just a bad thing, it's an accursed thing. That's right. Now, that's a strong word, isn't it? Accursed? 
it has this implication, if I take it, it'll ruin me. If I keep it, it'll spoil me. It'd be like a poison or a disease. It's like you, you don't take, you don't intrude upon that which belongs to the Lord. It's super strong language. It's the same idea in, in Malachi 1 and 2, that there's some things that belong to God, and if you take it, um, it's like this. Doesn't a thief accursed himself. Does that make sense? If I, if I take this, now I brought upon myself the curse of thievery and robbery, and now there is a, a consequence for that decision. So to steal is accursed in that sense. It's not that the treasure in my hand, you know, makes my hand turn disease. It's that that object that's not mine in my hand brings about a consequence that has great negativity to it. And that's the idea here. Taking what belongs to God brings that curse with it. Now, before we are tempted to think God somehow here is selfish or this is arbitrary, of course, that is not at all in view. Rather, what God is trying to teach these people is to trust me, to depend on me. Understand, I'm going to fight here in a unique way, but in all of life, the battle is really the Lord's. And if you trust me here and see my provision, then I want you to trust me in all of life and in the future, that would also be true with your ties. I can, with 90%, 80%, 70%, um, I can multiply that, I can be with you, and, and you can still win. And, and so, after this, really the spoil from other battles, and even the land itself, in measure, um, after the first fruits went to the treasury, would be spread amongst the people, and in time, the people would become actually quite rich. And so there would be plenty for living for all of them in time. And then, of course, what God intended, plenty for giving as well. And that's what God intended. So in the text, if we look like for principles, I see three things. Um, you know, fairly obviously, number one, I see a principle. That God wants us to give Him the first and best of what we have. Now, that was the idea today from Leviticus chapter 27. That as the people were to get in crops, they were to bring the first and the best to the Lord. As they had sheep that were counted, and they would count them in tens, that the first one, and not just the first one, but, but the best among them, was to go to the Lord. They weren't to look at the ten and say, now this one's better than that one, and so whatever else. They were to trust the Lord that that, that first one belonged to Him. And so there's a principle. You trust the Lord, and you give your best to Him. But that is met, that principle um, intersects with the problem. And the problem is this, there is a temptation on our part to keep what God wants devoted to Him. Right? That's the temptation. The commandment is, um, you, you be generous, you give, you tithe. And God gives that in part for the very reason that it intersects with our lack of trust. Our temptation to think, man, I can't, I, I can't make it if I tithe. I'm not going to have the money to pay my bills. Now look, that may be true, um, but it would be better for you not to rob God and to find a way to pay your bills another way than to rob God to pay your bills. Amen. And I would even say, if that's your position, you need to find a new way to live. That's and that's a, another sermon entirely, that you're not being a good steward. And if it's a, if it's a stress on you to tie the, um, to live within your means every month, then you need, you need more than faith. You need a lifestyle change. You need to limit and curb your spending. Um, but again, that's another thought. So a principle, 
you give to God, met with a problem. There's a temptation to struggle to do that. And then the third thought here is, if we failed that test, then there's a plague. By keeping what should be devoted to God, we curse ourselves and, div- and diminish and invite harm into our, our lives. So in our story, that's what happens. Um, a single man violates this command of the accursed thing. Is a man named, we know Achan. We know the story of Achan. And, he, and here's what is interesting to me. I am, I am probably pretty sure that Achan was otherwise a good man. He could probably go to church here and be a man of good standing. He, we might think he, you know, he could be worthy of teaching a Sunday school class. He, he might be a servant in other areas. But there's this thing about Achan. He doesn't give. He keeps what's God's. Um, in, in many other ways, he could have been an absolutely uh, honorable man, but there's this problem in his heart that he loved himself more than God in this area, and he would not give. And, and that selfish um, tendency was costly to Achan, especially as um, God was trying to teach a national lesson. In being selfish and having a lack of trust, he became a thief. And, and we know he stole some wedges of gold and some Babylonian garments, those things in his mind, would provide for them in hard times. That was the temptation to believe, rather than that God would take care of them in hard times. And that's the, the lie that we always believe. And so, no doubt, justifying himself, he brought a curse. And here's the, here's the sad tragedy. He brought a curse to himself and to his family and to his tribe and to his nation. In time, before he was dealt with, um, Jericho was a success. And matter of fact, it kind of bolstered, uh, maybe too much, their self-confidence. And so, shortly after, they went up to a much smaller city. And instead of sending the whole nation, they sent a fewer men. And they went up against Ai, and they were chased away. And dads and sons, fathers and uncles, men were killed. And so, now they're in this sort of national lamentation and like, what is wrong? And of course, God says, hey, is there sin in the camp? Like, there's someone who violated this commandment of the accursed saying. And so, they go with this procedure to bring out, you know, all the leaders of the tribes and they select and then the, you know, the the fathers and they work their way down to this man, Achan. And, uh, and because of selfishness, he created this condition of the entire group failing. He was called to account, and he and his family would die for their faithlessness. God knew that this new nation, if they resided in any measure of unbelief, they they would not make it in the land of Canaan. Now, I want us to stop here and think about a few principles, and I'll try to be quick. And I'm speaking to you now as a pastor, as a preacher. But I'm also talking to you as a pastor. And the distinction I make there is, is that I, I'm talking just about a group that I'm responsible for. And it's like a coach to a team. I'm, I, I want to call your attention to something that we all have a responsibility to do here. This is important. And I want you to think about this. And the thought is this. One man's failure can limit the group. One man's failure can limit the group. Okay. I don't know how many people were in Israel this time. Uh, commentators have all different opinions, but the thought is one million to three million. It's sort of the conventional numbers. 
And so what I'm saying to you is that one man in a nation, we'll say a million people, limited them all. See, our temptation is to think, well, man, I go to a church of eight or 900. What I do or does it matter? Obviously, what you do and, and don't do may not be as visible as this, but it would be a major spiritual mistake to think the way you live and what you do and don't do doesn't affect all of us here. That's right. Th that is a kind of ignorance that we cannot afford as a church and as members of a church because we know that's not true. One man's failure limits the group. What God asks of one, he asks of all. None of us have a diminished responsibility to live godly. None of us have a diminished responsibility to serve in some way. None of us have a diminished responsibility to be a witness. We may have varying abilities and whatever else, but what God asks of one, He asks of all. And that is true of giving, that is true of serving, and that is true of our heart. I have no greater obligation to live a godly life than you. I have to live with the responsibility that my life will be more scrutinized. And that is fair. But I don't have more or less responsibility than you. So I can say this another way. A single member's refusal to participate hurts, and this is more of a benign word for you, limits us all. It limits us all. Okay. I just want to stop and I'm going to be redundant, but it just makes sense. Okay? If I give $10 and Brian gives $10 and, and Kevin gives $10 and we add that up, well, that comes to some sum, doesn't it? Okay, but if I subtract you and you and you and you, doesn't that create a different sum? So no matter how you slice it, you're diminishing. Well, yeah, but it's only 30 bucks. Okay. It diminishes. It could possibly keep us from doing something significant. Um, that is why um, I have this uh, passion to see 100% participation in everything that we do. Um, look here, I want everyone to come to church. I don't think any of us have a greater responsibility than others to be here. In other words, okay, Sunday night I can be forward. Why should we be here all the time so that when you choose to come, there's somebody here when you choose to come? Does that make sense? Well, I'm going to come in and out when I want, but I know that when I come, people will be there. <laughs> That's so goofy. That's just so goofy. If, I, if you expect me to be here, then you be here. And it's okay to be gone for various reasons, and that's normal. But you don't have a diminished responsibility. It's sort of like a Wednesday night. I want everyone to be here. Well, that's never going to happen. It may not ever happen, but that if we're going to if we're going to choose to have service on Wednesday night, then I think that we are choosing that, right? If we're going to have outreach, then I would, you know, why would I say it now? As a goal, we want to have ten percent people at outreach. Well, maybe you can't come, and, and God knows, but it doesn't mean we can't pick up a track. Amen. You guys with me on this? Yes, sir. It's just a principle. 
God may ask us to serve in unique and different ways. We're members of family, uniquely gifted. We're going to fit and form together in this way, theological way that God puts together. But everyone here has to be a part. That's sort of what's implied in the word membership. Sometimes we are guilty of thinking that my little part doesn't matter. Um, but it's not true. We all know the proverbial rhyme. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a rider was lost. And for want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the war was lost. For the want of a war, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a nail. At some point, there's a limiting factor. Little things, little contributions can and do make a big difference when you're adding them up. Again, we can be guilty of marginalizing or excusing our lack of involvement, our lack of participation. We may believe that our little sin, my little unbelieving, doesn't, doesn't hurt. <clears throat> I'm going to try to read this. This is a little piece of paper that I actually copied from a, a really, really old commentator. I, I didn't write down who it was. I just liked it so much. I need to actually have it typed and put on a print I can read. But here's what he said about this text. I, I love this. It's said in a way that I can't say it. Let us think of Achan's temptation. A large amount of valuable property fell into the hands of the Israelites at Jericho. By law, all was devoted to the service of God. Now, a covetous man like Achan might find many plausible reasons to evade this law. Here's what he thinks. What I take for himself, he might say, will never be missed. There are hundreds of Babylonian garments, and there are many wedges of gold and silver and shekels without number, amply sufficient for the purpose to which they are devoted. I love that. If I were to deprive another man of his rightful share, I should be acting very wickedly. But I am really doing nothing of that kind. I am only diminishing imperceptibly what is to be used for public purpose. Nobody will suffer a wit by what I do, so it cannot be very wrong. Now the great lesson taught very solemnly and impressively to the whole nation was that what Achan did was awfully wrong. So you get how that works? Again, I go to a church of 850 people. There's enough people there to float the bill if I don't. There's enough people there to pay the, to pay the preacher, to keep the lights on, to do the renovations, to buy tracks. If I don't do it, man, there's enough people there. That's sort of pathetic, isn't it? Can you imagine? Having that mentality can't be very wrong. I don't know, men died over it. Well, that was a unique circumstance. It was meant to teach us a lesson. See, the thing is, we just don't always see it so overtly. No one's dying because you're not giving. So, you know, it's easier to hide the evil, the wrong, the stubborn heart, the selfishness. But it's, it's, it's there. See, let, let me try to illustrate this maybe another way. Um, 
So the piano over here, it's, it's, it's rather large, and I'm going to assume uh, its mass makes it heavy. So I'm going to walk over here. I'm not going to really do this, but you know, if I were to walk over here and grab it here and try to move it back to the back, what's the likelihood of success? About zero. Okay. And I mean, even if I really tried. And so, you know, then I asked four or five guys, hey, you guys come and help me. And so three or four of us around this thing, and we, we, we keep trying, and we, we're not seeing a lot of movement. And so we add a person, add a person. So here's the thought. I don't know how many people it's going to take, but at some point, one more person, just one more is going to make the difference. Right. You know, we might be able to, 12 of us might be able to get it up, but we can't really move it, but 13 is going to make the thing doable. It's going to make it doable. And other people say, well, you just go get a dolly and it's easier. <laughs> okay, that's a different way of thinking. But the point is, it's just one more sometimes. It's, it's just one more. Um, I don't know how that translates into the spiritual world and what happens here exactly. I, I don't. I, I don't know spiritually what happens in our unwillingness to participate. I can tell you this practically. When people fail to participate, there, there are ways that damage and things are diminished. So it's like when, and I go back to this, it's, and I, forgive me, but it's just easy. If there are X number of ladies who opt out of the nursery, okay, then that means the ones who do it have to do it what? Say it. More. So then maybe they're diminished by that because they want to be in here and they're not because they're trying to make sure that what happened to the Eastland Baptist Church happens. Does that make sense? So then one more might let one more person be in here one more time, and that might make a difference in their life. Um, someone may have to serve in the third-year-old classroom. Now, a lot of people want to do that forever, but some people might want to break, but they don't see anyone willing, so they stay there. And, you know, sometimes you just if you keep an engine revved up forever, it breaks. So I, I know practically people's uninvolvement can make a difference. Um, it happens. Maybe more positive, without your help, we're never going to reach a potential. To lift, to help, to give, to honor the Lord. The principle I want you to leave with tonight is one more really does and can and will make a difference. One more penny added to 99 gives you a dollar that may allow you to buy something that you otherwise couldn't. But I've got 99 that it cost a dollar. But I have 99. I need one more. Now, some people, they keep little pennies in the thing for you, so you still get it, but you get the idea, right? One more player added to 10 makes 11. Now you can play football. One more pulling a rope may be enough to pull that person to safety. Only one more person doing what God asked might make a difference that we couldn't comprehend. It can make a difference in the home, in the family, the church, and the kingdom of God. I'm not trying to put undue pressure on you, but someone's lack of involvement might be limiting all of us.
in ways that we can't see. So the goal one more time is to be involved. In science and psychology, sociology, there's a phenomenon known critical mass. I think all of us understand what critical mass is. It's a number where just one more of something, a unit of measurement, makes something move. It makes something happen. Critical mass is one more person lift the piano, makes it happen. In God's economy, um, all of us are the critical mass. Like, you know, there are things that we need to do here at Eastland. There are big things in the future, and your difference, what you can do, your contribution or lack of it, make no mistake, will affect what we can and can't do. It could affect the spirit of a service. One more smile might turn the crowd, critical mass. One more people, person singing with all their heart might lift everyone else to do the same. You with me? Yes, sir. One more person giving? I don't know. It would be sure cool to find out what would happen if everyone uh, would do what they could and nobody chose to be the limiting factor of one. Okay? Let me ask you to stand today, if you would.